0: Endless Hustle is presented by Routine. Routine helps you unlock optimal health and daily performance by leveraging AI, in-home testing, and the latest in-digital health tools to create a completely personalized micronutrient formula full of vitamins, minerals, and specialty compounds precisely dosed for your body based on your unique DNA, blood tests, and lifestyle habits. The process is simple, and thousands of members are choosing routine and reporting results like more energy, better stress management, improved mental clarity, and more. Visit routine.co to join. I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time
1: basketball players. We're really supposed to shut
2: up and dribble, but I'm glad. I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over?
0: Hello, hello, hello. Episode 78 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. I am, as always, your host, Arthur Cade. And boy, do we have an insane triple header for you. Talk about spanning all scopes and all genres. We're covering it all in this one. We lead off with one of my all-time favorites, Silent Bob himself. We've got Kevin Smith on the show. He has a new series on Netflix called Masters of the Universe Revelation. Yes, He-Man is back, and Kevin Smith is putting his spin on He-Man, and he's got an all-star cast participating. Mark Hamill, Chris Wood, his daughter Harley Quinn Smith, Sarah Michelle Geller, Lena Headey, and more insane stuff. I was geeking out over Kevin Smith, folks. I can't wait for you guys to hear this interview, because when you hear Kevin's passion and story about how he made clerks, how he made it in the business, bet on himself, and his passion for every filmmaker and artist out there, you are going to be ready to run through a wall. And by the way, Masters of the Universe Revelation debuts on Netflix July 23rd. So watch that as well. It is going to be awesome. Our next guest is arguably the most famous trainer in sports. The man who trained Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade, And countless other icons. He has an insanely successful business on his own. And now he has a new book called Winning. I'm talking about Tim Grover. It was such a thrill talking to him about the dynamics of working with some of the greatest athletes of all time, the breaks that he had to encounter in order to even begin working with Michael Jordan. You guys are going to absolutely dig this interview because it's a fascinating look into the mindset of what it takes to make it yourself as an entrepreneur, and then building a brand from there. And then our final two guests are two women that are headlining BKFC 19 Bare Knuckle Fighting Championship. They have another big, huge event this weekend. BKFC 19, it is Paige Van Zandt versus versus Rachel Ostevich. It's going to be coming to you live this Friday, July 23rd from beautiful Tampa, Florida. You can get the fight on fight.tv or at bkfc.com but we're chatting to the leading ladies Paige Van Zant and Rachel Ostovich. this is the second time Paige has been on the show and once again she absolutely brought her a game if you're not aware and you'll hear this in the interview Paige fought Rachel and actually beat her in the UFC this is an awesome rematch in the bare knuckle fighting championship so they're going to be boxing each other Paige has got a new boxing coach This is going to be an outstanding fight. I can't wait an awesome card for BKFC. So we've got an exciting triple header ahead. Let's start it off with one of my all time favorites. That's probably the fifth time I've already said it in this intro, but I love Kevin Smith. Here he is Kevin Smith. All right, it is a great day on the endless hustle as I have one of my all-time favorites, and here's the craziest shit of it all. I've been doing this for a decade, Kevin Smith, and I realized I don't think I've ever spoken to you, and I've talked to everybody in this business. So this is a first. This is a first, man.
3: Uh, you can uh, d- you have a chance to to become uh, the my favorite. Or the most forgettable interview ever. The choice is yours, my friend.
0: He's like, first or last. We'll (laughs) decide decide soon enough. This is America. We know there's only best and worst. That's it. Hey, brother, congratulations. Obviously, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. That was my favorite growing up. I'm sure you've heard it from a million people over the last few weeks. So to know that you brought it back and made it cool and just paid it the respect that it deserves is cool as shit. How cool is it to bring this franchise to a new generation?
3: It's fantastic. Now I've been watching 10 years of Marvel movies and watching them do this very thing, you know, studiously watching them as a fan uh, and never as somebody who's like, I could uh, copy this formula. I have my own universe with Jay and and Bob and stuff. So I was happy with those characters and, and, and content, lucky to be able to even do my own thing. But after, you know, like digging what Kevin Feige and Marvel been doing for like over a decade, when Mattel reached out to me and was like, do you have any interest in maybe doing an animated series for master's universe? Suddenly I was like, this is my chance to do and give back. Like the way I grew up reading all the Marvel comics. Now the Marvel movies spoon feed me my childhood back to me and tastier recipes and stuff. So I get to enjoy the same meals again as I did like as a kid and whatnot. I was like, this is what we do for the MOTU audience. The idea is like everything you remember absolutely true we ain't reinventing anything everyone looks the same everyone behaves the same our manifest though was just to tell the next story the idea was like what if this was the next episode of the old cartoon and instead of having to make it directly for uh, children they got to make it for those children who grew up so what if somebody could get stabbed in that world what if somebody could die in that world like basically You just add the element of stakes, which Masters of the Universe never really had in the cartoon, and suddenly it changes everything. It makes it like a little exciting, it makes it like, oh, and that is what people remember. Like I've now, of course, over the last two years, and particularly like the last month since the teaser dropped, I've interacted with all iterations of Masters of the Universe fans, people who were the toy people, people who are the cartoon people, the Mike Young people, the movie only people, all across the spectrum. And there's all the t- types of uh, different Masters of the Universe fans. And they all have memories of a show that didn't exist. Like, you know, when they talk about the old cartoon, the Filmation cartoon, they forget that it was a show made literally for kids with a moral lesson at the end and nobody was allowed to strike each other. Nobody could hit each other. A guy had a sword and he never used it, you know? So what they remember is like the show tainted with all their childhood memories of actually playing masters of the universe where their figures could stab each other and you could do whatever you want. So when we dropped that first teaser, Like people were like, this looks like my childhood. And I was like, it really doesn't. Like it's the colors of it and all the characters do. But go back and watch the show and they never did shit like this. What we're playing with is your nostalgia, your memory of the show, how you made it better. And that's the beauty of the Masters of the Universe franchise. It's never one thing. It was never created by one person. It's not like, you know, the lady that created Harry Potter and all the ideas come from her. This thing has had so many parents like in it, the first three years of its life and the last 35 years of its life as well, including the fact that like Mattel created a bunch of stuff, but DC Comics created like Prince Adam. There was no dual identity until DC in 1982 started writing the comics. Orco doesn't come in until like the cartoon itself. So there's lots of iterations to play with and all you have to do is give them the one that looks and feels more importantly, what they remember, like exactly what they remember.
0: I want to take you all the way back to the beginning. You're this budding filmmaker. You bet the farm. You go to Vancouver for like four months to learn how to make movies. You bet the farm and you're like, let me make this movie and see what happens. That movie turns out to be Clerks and launches you into becoming Kevin Smith. Do you ever look back and think to yourself, holy shit, I bet the farm. What if it hadn't worked out? Every fucking day. Still to this day, I'm I'm in this job
3: In my career, this job as Kevin Smith professionally, 27 years at this point, 28 if you count the the year that we actually made Clerks. I always count when like it got picked up at Sundays. So 27 years of this, and I swear I'm not, this is no bullshit. I swear to you from the bottom of my fucking heart, this is true. Not a day goes by where I don't go fuck that worked out because I was on the line, bro. Like it was like I had credit cards Like, cause I had applied for all these credit cards, but I didn't have money to back that up. Like I was an average American, tons of credit cards, no fucking money whatsoever. And my mom had always told me like, don't you ever use those credit cards? But suddenly I had a thing that was worth like throwing that good advice to to the wind for. Where I was like, I can finance a movie on these credit cards and if it works, I could change my life. I could be what I want to be for a living as opposed to accept what I have to accept and working for somebody else. So it was a gamble, but in the moment, it never felt like it. Like in the moment, it was like, I had no choice. It's like, this is how it has to go. Like, you know, I have to do it now while I'm young. I still live at my parents' house. Like I went to film school. I was never that ambitious. I didn't go to college, dropped out many times, but for some reason, this seemed to make sense to me. And I was like, if I put all my energy into this, there's a chance that like this could be a real thing. Even if it doesn't become my career, at least I get to make a fucking movie. All these other indie kids, they're making movies, why not me? So I was fueled by passion and, and, and like inexperience and ignorance. Thankfully, I was living at home at my parents, right? So I didn't have to worry about financial overhead. And my parents were patient enough with me where they're like, let him make this movie. He'll get it out of his system. Then he'll go be a waiter like his brother and stuff. And so I was like, I'm fine with that. If that's what you think would happen, great. I'm gonna take my shot. And so in doing it, it was all like moving forward, passion, volition. Like it was literally two years from the moment I saw Slacker, less than two years, to the point where I was watching Clerks in a theater. I saw somebody do something that spoke to me. I was like, I think I could do that too. And poured myself into pursuing it and then did it. And the first day we showed the movie at the IFFM, the independent feature film market, nobody was there to see it except me and the people that made it, the cast. And so my first screening of Clerks, I sank in my seat. I'd never seen it projected. All I could think was, why does this thing look so fucking bad? It looks like it was shot through a glass of milk. And everybody keeps cursing. Why do they keep cursing so much? Why did I think that was cool? Like, I'm I'm out of my mind. I've wasted money. Like, I'm out $27,000 on credit cards, which probably means 40-something thousand after, like, interest and shit. But then 10 minutes into the movie, I had this feeling, this calm come over me where I was like, look, two years ago, you came to the IFM and you watched people's movies here. And now you're sitting in one of those movie theaters and you're watching your own movie. And yeah, maybe it's not like what you thought it would be. It ain't gonna be bought like Slacker was picked up and bought, but you didn't like, that wasn't the dream. The dream was to make a movie and you made a movie and you loved who the fuck you were when you were making this movie for the first time in your life you understood exactly who you were. It's like when your brother came out and he was like, I'm gay, the world makes sense. I was like, I'm a filmmaker, I get it now. That's why I'm so bossy. I know why everything should be and shit. So I told myself in that screening, I was like, look, pay this back. You might have to get two other jobs, not just Quickstop, but you have to pay back this credit card debt. But once you're out of that hole, you have to do this again. Even if it's just one more time, because you finally knew who you were when you were doing this. And at that point I relaxed and enjoyed the rest of the movie in an empty theater and stuff. And then the next morning, everything changed. There was somebody at that screening that like called and started talking to people. Bob Hawk uh, is his name. And he spread the word and all of a sudden we started getting calls from people going, I wasn't at that screening, but I need to see this movie and stuff that generated interest. So it was by the skin of our teeth that almost nothing happened. And it wasn't until the movie got picked up. Like, cause you're Russian, man. You're moving with all your passion and volition toward a possible goal. And when we finally hit that goal, that's when I had a moment to relax and breathe. And I looked back and realized how fucking foolhardy the whole affair was. I never made a movie in my life. Like I watched movies, big fucking deal. For some reason I saw Slacker and I was like, I should do what that guy did. I can make a movie with my friends, why not? Here in New Jersey, that makes sense. But like, I was so caught up in it. I was so young. I I had a safety net under me because I was still living at my parents. I dropped out of college enough where I hadn't cost my parents much money. So the day came where I was like, look, we're poor. I don't have any cash and stuff, but I know you guys have like 3000 bucks and we need that to rent the camera package. I can't put that on my credit card. My parents were like, you know what? We'll give it to him because this is it. Like he didn't go to college. He didn't ask for college money. Let him make his silly movie and stuff. Everything will then Then he'll settle down. And when the movie became what it became, like, you know, my parents were fucking more shocked than anybody because they're like, we know this idiot. What do you mean he made something valuable and stuff? But they bought they bought into it quick. Like I remember I showed my mother Clerks first time. She goes, you spent $27,000 on that piece of garbage. That was her initial review of my first film. Then when the movie got picked up, we had a like premiere and shit and Entertainment Tonight was there. My mom was there and they interviewed me and my mom together. And, oh, my God, the amount of gushing. She was like, you know, he was always very clever. Yes, the movie has some words in it that I don't appreciate, but, like, he did this all on his own and shit like that. She became the world's biggest Kevin Smith fan. And she'll still be like, don't curse so much. But I'm like, ma, it's all about curse. I get paid to curse at this point, for heaven's sake.
0: What so, a front, yeah, what I was a front runner!
3: Your mom's a front runner. <laughs> she was. She was, man. But I was scared, and I still think about it. To this day, whenever I tell kids like, cause I, I'm out there talking a lot and stuff and I interact with young people who are like, I dream about doing what you do and shit. And I interact with old people who are the same way. And I tell the old people, I was like, look, don't leave this life without making a film. If you feel that, don't leave this life without doing it. I said, but you gotta remember when I did it, I had no wife, no kid, and I was living at my parents' house. So those were three benefits. I didn't have to think about my loved ones beyond my parents and shit. And it was really their job to think about me since I was their son. So I was safely cocooned when I made this first attempt. So I implore all kids, if you're young and you're like, I think I might like this, do it while you're living at your parents' houses. And and naturally in this day and age, everybody lives at their parents' houses and stuff. But the time is when you're young and stuff. It doesn't mean that like when you're old, you've aged out of it. Then you just have other people to consider. And unfortunately, the arts is about being selfish. It's one of the most selfish fucking acts in the world to write a song, to pay, paint a painting, to, to make a movie, to write a book, because you're telling the world what's on your mind, how you feel. World didn't ask you for that. World didn't knock on your door and be like, what are your thoughts on this? It's an artist putting themselves out there, like just giving the world something the world didn't ask for and hoping hoping against hope that the world winds up wanting it, realizing that they need it and stuff like that. So like, if you're older and you have people to think about, think about those people, square them away, but do this thing. Cause this has gotten cheaper. When we started, you know, it was like 27 grand to make a cheap movie. Now you could literally make, you know, they made the Florida project on a fucking iPhone, right? Like you could shoot a movie for peanuts at this point, but don't leave this world and not doing it, but always consider, those around you. Like if you've started a family, you've got responsibilities. When I made Clerks, I didn't have those responsibilities yet. Like my only responsibility was kind of to myself and I was shiftless and I didn't know what I wanted to do and I dropped out of college and I figured the best thing that could happen to me would be like I could open a deli because I sure knew how to make a sandwich. And then boom, film. So like I was a kid, 21 when I saw Slacker, um, 20, I went to film school, by the time I made Clerks, I was uh, started before I was 23. So like I finished clerks at 22 and then 23 took it out and into the world. It was a wonderful time to fuck up. But the adult Kevin Smith, who's now a parent, who's now lived many years, I'm almost 51. I look at the fucking kid, Kevin Smith. And I'm like, where did you get the balls? Like, who did you think you were? Like I've now I'm an adult. So I want to say adult shit to that kid. Like the same shit parents would have said to me like, you sure you wanna do this? You might wanna have a real job as a backup and shit like that. But like now I have the benefit of having lived through it um, and seeing what happens and stuff. So I, I try to caution, I try to give kids as much inspiration as possible. Everybody, kids and older people, like you could do this. If you feel creative, be fucking creative, particularly in the age of the internet, like the sky's the limit. People are becoming millionaires, multimillionaires off of TikTok videos for heaven's sakes. So if you have something creative to express, Bring it to the world. That's the only difference. World's never gonna come to you. They will never ever fucking come knocking on your door and be like, What do you have to offer? There's too many other options out there. So if you feel like you have something to offer, you gotta bring it to them. You gotta take the first steps toward it, man. There's two paths in this life: creation and destruction. destruction paths are fucking full because it's easy to make fun of a thing. It's easy to tear a thing down. It requires you put nothing of yourself into it. The creation lanes are wide the fuck open, easy for traveling, because that requires you put something of yourself into it. Something that a lot of people aren't willing to do. It doesn't make you better than the other people. It just makes you different. It makes you fucking creative. And if you feel that, lean into it. I don't care what age you are, but just always understand that if you've got dependence, you know, you can't like throw your family away at age 50 and be like, I'm going to be a 25 year old filmmaker. No, make sure you take care of your home before you go into your into your potential fantasy world. And it ain't just fantasy kids. Because I stand before people like as a living example, some cats are just like, Oh, man, that fucking don't happen to me. I'm like, bullshit. I'm a chimp. I'm not fucking educated. I don't have a fucking college degree to save my life. I got a bunch of on- honorary degrees now. I said, but I pulled it together man with no means from bumblefuck New, New Jersey. So I'm the last person in the world that you can tell that only happens to some people. Like I know it can happen to people who are undeserving like myself and untalented like myself but passion will take you a long way toward a thing. Don't matter how old you are but just know that there are risks. Cause sometimes, most times I'll be honest with you it don't work out like it did for me. We had a Cinderella story. It was like a million to one shot And it worked out because we said the right thing at the right time and stuff. But getting your foot in the door, getting your foot in the door, like one thing, staying in the room is a completely different other thing. And that's like a decades long struggle to stay relevant, to stay interesting, to not keep doing the same thing while still being familiar. Like, you know, Jane, Tom, Bob's still very much a part of my life and we try to grow them up and do different things with them. But like Familiar is nice. He-Man and the Master of the Universe, familiar to a lot of people. This is me working on something that generally, I don't get to reach this many people. You know, I reach Jay and Bob audience or the clerk's audience with my stuff. But since this teaser drop, I have been he- hearing from so many people who are like, this is my childhood. Like you literally are doing my childhood and you're doing it justice. So it's, it feels like being given a Star Wars or a Marvel, to be honest with you. The amount of like pressure and people being like, you better not fuck up. And mercifully, I feel like we didn't. I think we gave him the the show that at least I wanted to see.
0: Congratulations, Kevin! Awesome job. That was <clears throat> that was one of the most impassioned speeches I think I've ever heard, man. And that's why you're Kevin Smith. So congratulations, Masters of the Universe Revelations. It is now on Netflix. You're awesome, man. Absolutely huge fan. And hopefully, I ended up at the higher tier you of because I guess they
3: are you're at the top end, man, not the bottom half.
0: Thank you, my man. Pleasure having you on the show. You're welcome back anytime, Kevin. Please, I'll come doing the heartbeat, man. Thank you so much. You are the man, brother. Good luck with everything. See you soon. You as well. Have a great day. Take care, brother. All right, folks, if you don't want to run through a wall and chase your dreams after listening to Kevin Smith, I don't know who or what will make you want to do that. What a thrill. have kevin on the show kevin you are welcome back anytime man you're one of my all-time favorites it's probably the sixth time i've said it but so many iconic movies movies that defined my generation and my life and that i connected to and masters of the universe revelation i'm sure is going to be an enormous hit for netflix and for you to be bringing back he-man and masters of the universe to a new generation with the kevin smith voice behind it and vision i think people are going to really dig that our next guest I mentioned this at the top one of the most famous trainers in sports the man who helped mj and kobe and Dwayne wade become what they became we're chatting all about it and he's got a brand new best-selling book out called winning i think you guys are going to really dig this one here he is tim grover All right. It is a healthy day on the Endless Hustle today because I've got arguably the best and most famous trainer in sports joining me, Tim Grover. And Tim, I think I made a deal with your publicity team that you've got to give me free lessons. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Ask away. I got you. Trust me. i That's the wrong person to give permission to. I'll show up wherever you're at and be like, let's do some Tim Grover training. <laughs> Hey, man, congratulations, first of all, on the new book. And I wasn't joking. You arguably are the best and most well-known trainer. I mean, you've trained MJ, Kobe. It's incredible. How did this all start? I mean, when you go back all the way to the beginning, how did Tim Grover begin this journey?
1: Well, you know what? This is, it's crazy. So both my parents are of Indian descent, all right? So if you know anything about Indian parents, you have two two options for education and job number one is a doctor and number two is a doctor that was it so I went to co- I went to college I had no idea what I wanted to do and uh one of my counselors said hey there's a new course I'll call kinesiology exercise science I think you'd be interested in I said all right I took a couple of courses I absolutely loved it and then from there I was just like I was playing college basketball at the time also and I was um I had told my parents, I said, I think I found what I wanted to do. And they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I'm going to train professional athletes. I was like, what does that even mean? What does that, mean? What does that even mean? I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's, no job, there's no job description in the newspaper. That's where you used to look in the want ads and they used to have, there's no job description for a trainer for a prof- professional athletes. And they were like, I was just like, yeah, this is, this is what I really want to do. And my parents were like, all right, listen, you know what we want you to do. And my dad said, all right, listen, I'll let you pursue what you want to do, but you still have to take the uh, entrance exam to medical school. I said, okay, I'll do that. So the first time I took it, I absolutely bombed. I bombed it on purpose. And my dad goes, nice try. I already signed you up for the next one. And I, I sco- I took the next one scored fairly well enough to get into a few selective schools. And I made a deal with them. I said, listen, if I can't, um, I said, if I can't make this go, I said, I will go back. I will go to medical school. So I actually finished college with a master's degree in exercise science and like, OK, really didn't have a job, didn't have an opportunity. Back then, the minimum wage was three dollars and thirty five cents. So I took a I took a job at a local health club with a master's degree, making three dollars and thirty five cents. And actually ended up being one of the best things I ended up doing because I had all the knowledge about the training, but I had no practical experience in it, not much. So this way, it got me a chance to really work on, work on my craft. So I started to train everybody, anybody that wanted to lose weight, get into shape, housewives, you know, recreational athletes, tennis players, kids, whoever, whatever they wanted to do. And I built a reputation of, you know, getting results. Then I saw a little, I was at that for almost three years uh, making good money, making you know decent money back then. Then I saw a little article in the paper saying, and I knew I was running out of time because my parents were like, all right, what's going on here, but at least he's working. I saw a little article in the paper said how Michael Jordan was tired of taking the physical abuse from the Detroit Pistons. I said, hmm, okay. I've never worked with a professional athlete. I said, you know what? I'm going to send out letters to all the other bulls players. Now this was before emails, texts, any of that stuff. So you had to handwrite letters. So I handwrote letters to 14 of those Chicago bulls players. The one person I did not write a letter to was Michael Jordan. So I was like, I've never worked with a professional athlete. There's no way they're going to let me work with him. So one of the letters, Actually made it or a few of the letters actually made it to the players and one and one letter was sitting open in a locker and Michael actually reached inside that. uh, That locker and pulled out the letter and read it and gave it to the team physician and athletic trainer for the team at the time and said hey find out what this kid's about. So I get, a, I get a call from the, the athletic trainer at that time and he goes, Hey, we have somebody that's interested in your, in your service, in your services. I was like, okay, they didn't tell me who it was. I'm thinking it's one of the, you know, the players that really doesn't play much. They're like, it's like okay. It's like
0: know. Will Perdue or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: way, way, way down, way down, way down. I think uh, way down on the line. I was like, all right. So then for three months, they literally drilled me more than I was you know, when I was in college about my knowledge, practicals, everything I wanted to make sure I knew what I was doing. Still didn't know who, I, who they were interviewing me for. Then three months passed by, and then they go and say, hey, listen, we want you to go meet the client. Here's the address. All right. They didn't tell me who it was. So I look at the address. I drive out there. It's in the, it's in the suburbs. I drive out there. This is before the big gated house and all that other stuff. So I ring the doorbell once, no answer. I ring the doorbell twice, no answer. I ring it the third time. I was like, all right, I've just been set up. Or, or he's not, or this person's not home. Michael Jordan ends up opening up the door. And I had never worked with a professional athlete before. Luckily I'm not a star struck person. So I was like, all right, I'm, I'm prepared for anything they're gonna throw at me. Cause I did my homework on all the different athletes, what they, what their needs were. So Michael and I, we say invited me in the house, big mistake, I had, I had Converse gym shoes on. So I had to take those off before I, went in the, before I went in the house. So we go downstairs, talk for about 30, 40 minutes. I explained my plan to him. I said, hey, this is what I can do. This, this is my philosophy. He goes, you know, he was all about, listen, I just want to get bigger and stronger. I'm tired of taking the abuse. Uh, I want to be more athletic. I want to be able to do things. And the plans everyone else had given them were completely different than what I had, uh, what I had said. I said, well, let's focus in on something else first. I said, Michael, you know, you're constantly you have little nagging injuries. You always have a little hamstring issue. You have a groin issue. You have ankle issues. I said, let's address those problems. I said, if we address those problems, you're automatically going to be stronger. You're automatically going to be more athletic. You're automatically going to be, a, be- a, a better a better, basketball player. And nobody had kind of presented those things to him. And he said, I'll try it for 30 days. And 30 days turned into 15 years.
0: Do you understand how fucking bonkers that story is,
1: Tim? Like. It's- I can't even believe it when I say it sometimes. I'm like, you know, it should be like a fairy tale in, Di- in Disneyland or something.
0: <laughs> so I actually played in high school with Kobe Bryant. Little, I tell this all the time. I'm from Philadelphia originally, and I played in summer, te- summer league teams with him. And I say it to this day, the best player I've ever seen on the court, and I've been on the court with a ton of NBA players, was, was Kobe Bryant. I'll never forget it. 15 or 16 years old, that kid's mindset. He was already an assassin. I mean, yes. he wanted to kill you. And Jordan had that same thing. And what it makes you realize, and you talk about this in your book, Winning, that mindset is probably the number one factor to success is that that ninja mindset. Do you know it immediately when you meet a Kobe or an MJ or the, the countless other people you've worked with, can you sense that assassin mindset immediately?
1: You know, you can't sense it immediately because when you sit down with an individual, they always give you the right answers. They always give you the right. I always get individuals that come up to me and say, listen, I'll do anything. Well, their definition of anything and my definition of anything is completely different. All right, but you know when you see individuals like an MJ, you see individuals like a Kobe. They have a track record not only about talking about it, but actually producing results and living that mentality and doing those things that are doing those things and not doing the things that are necessary to become those individuals. The way they handled adversity so early in their in their in, in their lives, you know, Michael getting cut as a sophomore from uh, from the uh, from his bas- from the varsity basketball team. Kobe, you know, being an individual playing basketball in Italy when everybody else is playing soccer and not and not really fitting in and not knowing the language and doing all those things, and you know, still constantly pursuing his, pursuing his greatness and that that mental sharpness. So you could see the way individuals handle adversity at a very young, at a very young age that develops that mindset to be what you call as that ninja mindset. It's just like no prisoners, I'm ultra focused. I know how to get in this zone. I'm not taking, I'm not taking no for an answer. I'm going to win at all costs.
0: Yeah. So it, you nailed it right there. And you've been on this is a testament to how big a deal you've become in the sporting world. You've been on this massive press store for this book. The stories are incredible. So I don't want to rehash them. People just should buy the book and hear all these incredible stories. Or they can Google you because there's a million articles. Again, a huge testament, but thank you. The, the thing that blows my mind is when you look at NBA players today or athletes in general today and the conditioning, I mean, you see the LeBron workouts today. Yes. MJ was kind of the beginning of that. guys. When you started having that impact, and obviously everybody saw the muscle growth, the conditioning, and how did, that, how did you see the change around the league when they started seeing what, what was happening with MJ with your work?
1: Well, what happened was, you know, we started to do things that nobody else had done before. You know, everybody, Michael was the first player, first professional athlete that I knew of other than boxers and tracks and people that did Olympics that had somebody designated strictly for him that said, hey, you are in charge of my well-being. You're in charge uh, of my hydration. You're in charge of my food. You're in charge of my injury prevention. You're in charge of my strength and conditioning. You're in charge of my rest. You're in charge of all, all these things. I want a plan developed for me, not for a general plan that's for everybody on the team. I want something that's designated for me. So now a lot of individuals are starting to see that, hey, everybody's body's a little different. The way The way you react to certain foods, the way your schedule is set up. So Michael was the first one that really opened the door to say, hey, listen, find that individual or a group of individuals that have an expertise in things that you don't and let them enhance your abilities. So then you got to see with the results, you know, Michael, everybody got to see how his body starts slowly change and he actually became more athletic and more durable. I mean, the testimony, one of the most biggest testaments to our work is the amount of games that he played. I mean, during the 10 years during a span of 10 years, he had only missed six games.
0: Only six. There's there's a highlight reel. This is I, I get into death battles with people about the eighties and nineties versus today's basketball where you can't touch anybody. But when you see the highlight reel of Michael Jordan being clotheslined every other game and understand the punishment that he had to take. And look, he's a big guy. He was six six. I mean, but compared to like LeBron, who's a freaking linebacker today, yeah. To take the abuse from Bill Lane Beers, Rick Mahorns of the world, I can't even imagine what that's like being catching a small elbow from those guys. So when you look at basketball back then and what you had to really prep him through back then versus what you're seeing today, are you a fan of where the sport has gone in the no contact? Or do you relish in looking at a guy like MJ and knowing that you guys built something together to go through wars?
1: You know, the game has changed, but I listen, I, I grew up in the in the physicality era. So I enjoy the physicality, not only on the offensive side, but on the defensive side. You know, the the players back then took pride on not having the opponent score all those points, where you had to play both both uh, both ends of the both ends of the floor, not just playing one end of the floor. Obviously, the game is a lot more open uh, with the three pointers. People are run, it, it. It's more of a um, it's more of a sprint now, where they just go they go back and forth and they try to outscore everyone. But there are some. How can I describe it? There are some nuances that that the, the teamwork isn't quite, quite as cohesive as it, as, it, as it used to be. Now they have special players, they have specialty players, you know, that this player can shoot, this player can do this thing. And there's a lot of wasted movement with the dribbles, which, wasn't, which I wasn't accustomed to in the, pa- in the past. And the way the rules are set up now, the rules are set up to make it easier to score, you know, because you can't hand check and you can't do those things, but you know what? Those are the rules now. That's the way. That's the the way the game is designed. Even football has changed. uh, Even football has changed to make it uh, less less contact on the quarterback, easier to score. So, I still enjoy the sport. Would I like to see a little mixture of both? Yes, I yes I would. Would I like to see? you know, each team to have a dominant big man and to have some value inside of, you know, the the guy that gets the ball inside and pounds the thing and does all the hooks and all that other stuff. Yeah, I would love to see that a little bit more. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. I don't know. So when
0: I, I was actually thinking about the first time I became aware of you and I can't remember the exact moment. It might've been a 60 minutes piece. It was one of those shows where they were profiling your work with MJ. But when you start becoming, in in a word, famous yourself, because they're showing MJ's training regimen and they're like, "Here's Tim Grover, the guy actually training him." What was that like, and how did that explode your business?
1: Well, obviously, you know, it, it brought it brought a lot of attention and notoriety. You know, this was before the social media era and all that other stuff, before Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that. Even if it was available back then. I'm not that individual to go boast about my results. To me, what my clients do and how they excel—that's my advertisement. You know, for me to go out and put a post on something is not as valuable as to have the client actually mention my name in a piece or say some uh, or, or say something. I've always relished the individual of uh, the person being in the background. That's how I've. Uh, It's their job to shine, it's my job to keep them shiny, be able to perform at the highest level and continue to shine for as as long as I can. But you know what, Michael always, you know a lot of people used to approach Michael and they would say, and I know you've probably heard this story where they would say, hey, listen, can can I use Grover? And then my, uh, excuse me, MJ's standard line was, listen, I don't pay Grover to train me, I pay him not to train anybody else you know, which is the biggest compliment that, that you can get. So everybody knew that they had to go to the gatekeeper to get, to, to get permission just to, just to work with me. And for the first three years, he didn't allow me to work with anybody else. He didn't. Then, then he slowly afterwards, after he won a couple of, a uh, couple of titles, and he was like, okay, listen, you can start training other individuals, but only during the off season, here are the parameters. Here's the time. And he said, let each individual know that if I call, you got to stop whatever you're doing and you need to leave. I saw every, everyone knew that everybody knew that and how I got to Kobe was through MJ. So that was the, that was one of my big, biggest things, you know, in 2007, Kobe uh, reached out to MJ and say, Hey, my knees are actually, he goes, they're killing me. And, uh, he just said, man, he goes, I don't know if I can keep this pace up anymore. And he said, um, MJ said, "Hey, I'm not using my guy anymore because he was long retired. by that he goes, why don't you give Grover? Why don't you give Grover a uh, a call?" And he said, "Hey, well, tell me about Grover." He goes, "Well, Grover really, really knows his stuff, but he is the biggest asshole you'll ever meet." Best compliment I ever got from MJ because he didn't call me a asshole. He called me the asshole. And what he meant by that is, listen, he's going to tell you when you're wrong. He's going to hold you accountable. He's not a yes guy. He's going to, you know, he's, he's just the way in the book, the language I use in the book of winning is the same way I talk to these individuals. That's the way I know. And Kobe said, that's absolutely perfect for me. That's exactly what I need. So that's how, so I was blessed enough to go from that relationship to the, to that other, to that next relationship. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. Listen, would I've been the same at the same level without having MJ? Absolutely. Absolutely not. I mean, am I blessed? And was I prepared for the opportunity for him to be my first professional client? And I had other individuals that tried that offered me way more money that said, Hey, come work for me. And I turned those individuals down. Of course. It's like giving up the Rolls Royce of Rolls Royces. You don't piss him off. Exactly. You don't, you know, you just like, and, and, but there are individuals that go for that short gain. And I'm looking now, first of all, there's very, you can see it in professional sports. There's very little loyalty. Among, indivi- among individuals, among teams and so forth. I was brought up, listen, you look out for the people that looked out for you. This is an individual that gave me my chance, gave me an opportunity when no one else, he didn't have to, he didn't have to. I had no resume to say, Hey, I'm going to try. I- I've trained this many professional athletes. I was, I'm two years younger than he was.
0: Well, We've talked a lot about the physicality, but the, The, the people we're talking about were probably the most mentally strong athletes to potentially ever walk this earth. They're at least somewhere on that top 10 list. We just had an enormous story this weekend with Naomi Osaka, who obviously withdrew from the French open and talked about, we just had an enormous story this weekend with Naomi Osaka, who obviously withdrew from the French open and talked about her mental health issues. As someone who was able to get inside the minds of people like MJ and Kobe and so many others, when you see what Naomi had to go through, what are your feelings around that?
1: Well, you know what, that's what the book's about. It explains, everybody thinks winning is this glorious thing and it is, but no one understands the things that, everything else that winning brings. I mean, look, she won her first major when she was a teenager. So now all of a sudden, everywhere she goes, everything she does is under the spotlight. Everything is scrutinized. Everything that she says, every there's no place that you can go. So you basically, all of a sudden, when you win that big competition, your life is no longer yours, especially nowadays with the social media thing and everything. And she said it, she goes, listen, I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert, all right? Now having to deal with everything that has to go on, that has to go on, the, the pressure, and the language of winning and having to having to take that take that bus from winning back to hell, back to winning again. It takes a toll on people. It really does. She's not the first pre- professional athlete that's had to walk away. I mean, there's you know MJ after people couldn't can't even imagine. I was around for those things like Lily after each game to have a hundred reporters waiting by your locker to ask you every single question of what was going on, anything that went on in your personal life, anything that went on on your business, it, it starts to take, it really starts to take a toll. And that's the side of winning that nobody really understands how much of a mental pressure and stress that it puts on these individuals. You know, they look at them and they say, these individuals are so, like you said, they're so mentally tough in their sports. They're so, you know, they're so laser focused. They they win over and over again. But outside the sport, they're still human beings. They have the same emotions. They have they have the same trigger points. They have the same issues that everybody, everybody has to deal with. But they just can't say, no, I'm not talking to the media today, or I'm not talking to this individual or go somewhere and hide because it's going to get blown into this blown into this big big story
0: when you're yelling at mj and yelling at kobe never yelled at, are...
1: never 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 yet never yelled at, and never had to raise my voice at at either one of those guys let me rephrase
0: when you're being an a hole in the there moment you go. okay <laughs> do you ever kind of take a step back in your own mind and think I'm being an a-hole to two of the greatest athletes to ever walk this earth. How cool is this shit?
1: <laughs> I, I did. You know what? You, but I had to I had to earn that level of respect with those individuals. And they, you know, did they always agree with everything I had to say? Absolutely not. Or did they respect that I would not back down from what I knew was right and the ability to prove what I was right? And I'll give you a great, I'll give you a great point on this. I literally had told when MJ was transitioning from baseball back to basketball, all right, I had told him we don't have enough time. I said, we, I don't have enough time to transition that body back. I said, you spent 18 months making it a baseball body. Now in two months, you want to turn it back into a basketball body. I said, it can't, it can't be done. I said, it can't, it can't be done. I said, we can get you close, there'll be glimpses but you know, it, it can't, it can't be. And you know, I get the total F you, you don't know what you're talking about, da da da, and so forth. And he goes out and, you know, drops a double nickel in, uh, on the Knicks and all this other stuff. And he kind of keeps giving me the glare and, and so forth. When the playoffs came around, then we got a chance to see that he was 90% MJ, but he wasn't hundred percent MJ. Until the last dance, he finally admitted it and said, I didn't have enough time. There was a, it was the first time he admitted. So I waited. I stopped working him with what in 96 90, maybe 99, now well, I do count well you got to count the wizard years too. So let's say in the you know in the late 90s I stopped working with him. This is 2000. It was 2020 that I finally got validation for what I had been saying all, all, all along up to this,
0: this point. And I was so shocked. I was like, what, what did he just say? When you first start working with Kobe and obviously he's the closest thing, both skill-wise and mentally that the league has ever seen to MJ. When you get in there, how much did he let you in on how much he emulated MJ and he's Even as a kid, he was the most curious guy. Everything, I know you've talked about this at length. Why, 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 why? How much did he actually want to almost become MJ? Or did he see his own vision and I'm going to steal from MJ?
1: Exactly. He had his own vision and he, listen, he stole from everybody. It wasn't, yeah. Anybody he could steal from, he, he would, he stole from Michael. He stole from Scotty. He stole from Dennis Rodman, Oscar Robinson, you name it. He stole from, I mean, we used to watch old films of Bob Cousy, uh, Pete Mirovich, all those individuals. He stole from everyone. He wanted to create his own recipe to develop the best Kobe Bryant, but he knew he was chasing the ghost. He knew he was chasing MJ. Had those six championship rings. Everybody was comparing him to that individual. And everybody like, oh, you know, they was like, oh, he's emulating Michael. Well, listen, if you're gonna try to emulate somebody, you emulate the best person out there. You know, you don't emulate you don't emulate someone that's that doesn't make a team. So he was doing the right thing. He was gathering knowledge from all these individuals, studying what they were doing, their mannerisms, how they played, how they played players, how they handled different situations on and off the court. So he wanted to be the best Kobe Bryant out there. So when I started working with him, one of the reporters had asked him said, hey, you know, we've heard that you've hired uh, Michael's former uh, trainer, Tim Grover says, you know, what do you think about him? He goes, he goes, he ain't done shit for me. He goes, I, he goes, ask me at the end of the year. I goes, I just started for him. He goes, I, I know what he's done for MJ, but he ain't done nothing for me yet. And, you know, obviously, you know, you, know, you knew Kobe and that's exactly what he was like. He's like, I, I don't know. And which, which, you know, I relish that. I relish that because I'm just as competitive as those individuals were. I didn't want to, I didn't want to live on just the laurels of being MJ's guy. And you see a lot of individuals in here, they have programs and they live off of one guy. You know, people were like, "Oh, you did it for you. You did it for MJ. Now go and do it for somebody else." All right. Well, I go and did it for Kobe. Well, now I'll go and do it for somebody else. Well, okay, and I did it for Wade and thousands of other individuals uh, through the uh, through the league. You know, uh, Charles Barkley, Scott Scottie Pippen, Akeem Olajuwon, Tracy McGrady. Uh, the list. I, I can go on and on for individuals that people don't even know that I've worked with. Those individuals,
0: as exceptional as MJ and Kobe were. Who is the greatest athletic unicorn you've ever worked with? The greatest
1: athletic unicorn that I've ever worked with.
0: Hmm. Let
1: me think about
0: this for a little while. I have a guess, but I'm curious to hear who you say.
1: I, I'm going to give you a name that that's not that individuals are going to be like, they, they may not even know who this person is. His name was Will Bynum. Okay. Yeah. Right. Now the reason I'm saying that Will Bynum was barely five eight, five nine, you know, maybe five ten at best. His athletic ability was absolutely off the charts, off the charts. Him and the other person I would mention would probably be Corey Maggette. Those, though, they were just, just, just absolutely crazy. Now, on the court on the court and i mentioned this in my first book to watch charles barkley do what he did at 250 pounds and an individual who's barely 6'4 it was just it, it was absolutely amazing
0: by the way the crime of charles barkley is this generation has no fucking idea how great a player he was because not a clue they see him on NBA on TNT, and he's obviously become the most famous broadcaster in America. They forget that he was a fucking stallion.
1: Yes. Yeah. The way he, and everything he could pass, he could shoot, he could rebound, he could he could he could do it all. You're right, absolutely. They they have no they have no clue. They just look at him now and they're just like, oh, who the hell is this guy? Did he ever play? Did he ever do anything? And I, just like you said, Google him. Google and pull up some highlights on YouTube, and you'll be like, "No, you're like, yeah, that's." And by
0: him. the way, wasn't always in shape. <laughs> you know, no. like, was was fat a lot of the time when he was playing. Yes, yeah, he, he he
1: he really enjoyed his basketball, and he enjoyed his time off the court too. At the yeah, same his time, gambling, his legend, yes. of
0: gambling. Him. <laughs> one of the reasons I started this series was to talk to successful people like you about how they are able to enhance themselves in their careers. So my question to you, Tim Grover, is how do you continue to elevate in your work?
1: Well, that's exactly what you said. Was, I'm glad you used that term. You, so I've done, you know, I've done tons of these podcasts lately, radio shows, TV sync. You're the first person that's used elevate. Everyone else uses motivate, all right? And I would say motivation is entry level, all right? Motivation is entry level. How do you continue to elevate what you have. If you're still in the motivation stage, you're not even close to elevate. Listen, I still do that. I still do the same things I used to do when Pay attention to the details when I'm working with the athletes, with the organizations I work now, with the CEOs. I pay attention to every little detail. I pay, I educate myself. I'm constantly constantly learning. I don't pass any judgment on anybody. Everybody that has something to say, I find it, I I think of it as interesting. Is it something I can use? Is it not something I can't use? And what I've done is, and this is very important, and this is gonna be important to the listeners out there. I actually go out there and still try to master things. You know, people love, people love you know, they, they, they love to chase greatness. Everybody's chasing greatness. And I was like, well, for me, anything I'm learning, anything I'm trying to become better, everything I'm going to get better at, I have to first catch and master average. Once I catch and master average, then my next step is to catch and master good. Once I've catch and mastered good, then I'm going to go chase greatness in whatever else I'm trying to pursue. And that's the most important part. People don't want to master things anymore. You get individuals that, you know, I read 30 books. I read 30 books a month. Okay, tell me what you read in book number six. They have no clue because there's no mastery in anything they're, in, in anything they're do, uh, doing. So I, how I've always done whatever makes me better, whatever my clients need, I go out and I master that topic to the best of my
0: ability. Awesome man. This has been an absolute pleasure, Tim. I could talk to you for hours. I mean, trust me, like I could pick your brain. The, the shit you've seen and heard and experienced to me is like mind-boggling and Thank you. Congratulations. Your book is called Winning it, I'm, you're everywhere right now. Your stories are everywhere. And it's really a testament. I'm sure your Indian parents who wanted you to be a doctor <laughs> aren't too upset about how things turned out.
1: No, they're not. I appreciate it.
0: All right, folks, make sure to check out Tim Grover's brand new book, his best-selling book. It's called Winning. Dude is awesome, and what a story. You don't just become Michael Jordan's trainer by accident. I love him talking and recounting how little breaks, moments of effort, and hustle led him to become the success that he's become. Tim, thanks for a fabulous interview, man. Our final two guests are two women who are going to be battling it out on BKFC 19. Paige Van Zandt, Rachel Ostevich. I'd mentioned it before, but I'm mentioning it again. Friday, July 23rd, Tampa, Florida. Order the fight, fight fight.tv or bkfc.com. Amazing card. I cannot wait to see these two mix it up. When you guys listen to this interview, it is such an incredible example of two women, two individuals showing respect for each other, seeing themselves as competitors, wanting to put on a great show but knowing that they got to knock each other's heads off. I think you're going to really dig this chat. So here they are, Paige Van Zandt, Rachel Ostevich. And remember, BKFC 19 this Friday. All right, we got an exciting day on the Endless Hustle today as I'm chatting with BKFC 19's main card, two women who have fought each other before in the UFC world, but now we're bringing it to the bare knuckle world. Paige Van Zandt, Rachel Ostevich. All right, here's the number one question. What can we expect?
4: Uh, I think if you've watched any of the BKFC events or fights, you know, every fight's exciting. It doesn't matter who's in there, who you're going against. It's going to be a really exciting night of fights.
0: All right, Rachel. So bad blood here, UFC, you guys are getting back in the ring. I want to hear from each one of you. What's it like to now bring it to the bare knuckle arena?
2: For me, this will be my first experience uh, entering the bare knuckle arena, um, but I was fortunate to go to the last BKFC, and that was an experience in itself. And I was so glad to be sitting, you know, cage tied and just getting all of that realness, and it really helped me prepare um, even better for this fight.
0: All right, Paige, this is now going to be your second time. So how did the first time change you? What was the experience like versus what you expected? How do you change up getting ready for this next fight? How do you continue to evolve?
4: Um, I think, yeah, definitely going into it, I feel like the experience is a big advantage. I was fighting somebody who had maybe like five bare knuckle fights or had a the bare knuckle experience so I think it definitely helps you can't necessarily like punch your training partners in the face without gloves on um so it's the same preparation you know working as hard as I can you know trying to capitalize and be the best boxer I can for bare knuckle
0: so Paige for you obviously you fought Rachel before in the UFC now that you guys have essentially been competitors against each other, what's the energy like going into this fight? Is there bad blood? How is there a mental edge? What is it actually like preparing for this?
4: You know, honestly, I have so much respect for Rachel. And I feel like we're we're similar as far as personalities. It's nice to go into a fight and not have to like deal with the catty back talk and all the like outside noise. It's nice to know that. You know, we don't have to talk shit about each other. (laughs) We know we're going to go in there and like, we're going to fight each other. Why fight beforehand? Why waste both of our time and energy? We can both just train, become the best athletes we possibly can be. And I think there is like other narratives that can be pushed here, right? We're definitely like, I think Rachel's smoking hot. I love that I get to fight someone like her, but that doesn't change the way that I'm going to fight. And I I highly respect her as an athlete and as a person, but I'm still going to go out there and try to win this fight
0: rachel what about for you do you have that same type of respect or how are you able even if you do have that respect to be able to bring the aggression necessary in order to want to knock Paige out
2: this will be our second time fighting and i agree with page <laughs> like we know we're gonna bring the show like it's gonna happen we're both competitive We we'll eq we know what's ha- we know what's going down like regardless and you know what everything going on with all these you know these um uh, TikTok, YouTube, it gets redundant seeing everybody just always. Nah, 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 nah. It's nice, it's refreshing. This is refreshing. I really like it. But don't get it twisted. It's it's going down.
0: <laughs> yep. Paige, let me flip that question to you. Obviously, when you have that type of respect, you're still getting in there trying to knock her the F out. How are you able to turn <laughs> off the respect button and get into the I'm gonna win this and I'm gonna kill I'm gonna beat the living crap out of her mode.
4: No, I think there has to be an element of respect, no matter who you're fighting, you have to go out there and understand what they bring to the table, how hard they've trained, how hard they've sacrificed for this. Like, there's that has to be that element of all right, this person's trained their entire life to fight me. And you have to go in there with a good head on your shoulders and realize you're about to go to battle. And it's it's no like question for me, there's no difference. I respect every single person that I have fought. Of course, some of the people I fought have had that like negative, or needed to feel like they hate the person they're fighting, or they needed to have that negative, you know, narrative going into it. And a lot of that I feel like is pushed by like the media. There's constantly this like, it has to be like good versus evil, but it's like, what a lame narrative. Like, think of something better. There's other things to talk about other than like good, you know, there's doesn't have to be a villain, right? So we're two badass bitches. We're both superheroes. We're gonna go out there and find out who the best superhero is.
0: And I want to actually ask you about that, Paige, because now this is the second time that as women, you are the headliner for BKFC. To be able to know that you're setting that type of example, you're part of a major organization, combat sports, and it's two women at the top. What does that mean to you personally? And then, Rachel, I'm going to direct the same question to you after Paige answers.
4: Yeah, it's huge. I mean, especially think about bare knuckle. It's like the rawest form of fighting. It it doesn't get much more violent and nasty than this. We're going back to like the roots of all combat sports, more bare knuckle boxing each other. So it's like gladiator style and not a lot of people are brave enough to do that. And to see two women headlining who I feel like are always in the conversation of being just hot girls. Now we're headlining one of the rawest form of combat sports. And I think it, you know, you got to show respect to BKFC for putting this on and highlighting two athletes like Rachel and I, and then also to ourselves, you know, we're, we're doing this not because we're cute, we're doing this because we absolutely love fighting.
0: Rachel, how about for you, being the headliner on this card, what does that mean to you?
2: It means a lot, you know, um, again, me and Paige are definitely on the same, same viewpoint here. Um, you know, we love showing out for our, our women, athletes, especially the young girls that look up to us and, you know, athletes, male or female. Um, very, very honored to be here. Um, definitely don't want to um, miss out on such a great opportunity to, you know, prove to the world why we belong here.
0: Paige, you switched boxing coaches since your last fight. How has that changed your fighting style? How has it helped you improve going into BKFC 19?
4: Yeah, moving out here to Florida, I was in the transition period of trying to figure out, one, a new coaching staff, and then two, I wasn't sure what I was gonna do with my career. It was right before I signed with BKFC. So I was training an American top team, obviously coming from MMA. And then after my last fight, I did realize, you know, if I'm going to try to be as competitive as possible in BKFC, I need to get with a straight boxing coach. And that's how I found Pedro Diaz. And he's been night and day. And, you know, wherever my career takes me, if that's staying in bare knuckle forever, if it's going from here to straight boxing or if I'm going to MMA, I'm going to keep him in my coaching corner forever. He's changed my entire fighting style. And uh, I'm, I'm really fortunate that I was able to be here in Miami and find him as a coach.
0: How was the experience against Britain different than what you may have expected going in?
4: Um, I think the experience wasn't different for me. I kind of went into it. You have to kind of get your feel, right? I hadn't boxed before. So I needed to figure out the straight boxing element and I needed to figure out the bare knuckle element. And I think what the biggest, the the most commendable thing about that fight is you can see my uh, knowledge of the fight game change as the fight went on, right? I felt like I was able to learn and adapt as the fight went so you saw me in the first round I was kind of figuring it out I was a little bit more hesitant and then by the fifth round I completely was dominating and one more round the fight would have gone a completely different direction
0: Rachel to be part of BKFC and I've talked to Paige about this but to see what they are building with that organization the presence that they've created what are your thoughts about how this incredible expansion is happening with BKFC
2: Um, We love to see it. You know, I love being part of a growing uh, growing sport and um, especially uh, fighting Paige on this and kind of setting the tone here. And um, yeah.
0: So for you, Paige, obviously Britain is also on this card. What's the energy and the blood after coming out of that fight? Because I know she's been also obviously talking a lot and other fighters have been talking a lot about you again, headlining. Did you deserve this? Not deserve it but primarily her, what's the energy and what's the relationship there right now?
4: Uh, you know what, BKFC does things because they're obviously the fastest growing sport for a reason, and they understand it's <laughs> the entertainment industry. And if you want to sell tickets, you have to realize who the main event has to be. And they're doing everything they are, and they're successful because they have a smart trajectory of the sport.
0: So for you, Paige, I've talked to so many of the male competitors in BKFC, and they all just applaud you for how much publicity how much awareness you've brought to the organization and to the sport in general are you aware and do you have a sense of how much you've also been able to forward it because of your celebrity and and, and being part of it
4: yeah i think I, I definitely have noticed especially before you saw bkfc and bare knuckle boxing as just a violent sport, full of men who want him to just be violent. But it's so much—it's so much more than that. And I think it takes athletes, one female athletes, and then female athletes like Rachel and I, to bring attention to the organization because we do have these big platforms. But then on top of that, we're—you've uh, never seen people like us fighting in bare knuckle, and it's—we're starting the wave of something brand new. And I'm excited that since I've transitioned, I've you know gotten my feet wet beat KFC now you've seen a lot more really talented women come over. And I, I do anticipate that there's going to be a lot more UFC fighters, Bellator four fighters coming over because uh, maybe it took me for them to notice BKFC, but now they're like, Holy cow, this is an amazing organization. Not only do they treat their athletes really well, but they're, they put on an awesome show. And they know exactly what they're doing and, and they are really just taking off.
0: Rachel, for you, obviously, Paige has now gotten her feet wet in the bare knuckle ring. But for you, how are you preparing going from the UFC world to the BKFC world?
2: Well, UFC, um, obviously, four ounce gloves. BKFC, no gloves. You know, so um, we preparing the same. You know, uh, taking it day by day. Strategy techniques a little different. Uh, different, different game. You know, than just straight up boxing and MMA. So um, it's a lot of new, fun things going on back in the gym. But um, I love it because I'm always learning and constantly growing. And, you know, I, I can't be out here punching my teammates bare knuckle. So it's been fun. I've been punching other things, though, and it's it's interesting. And I, I'm excited for this, this fight and to get my feet wet.
0: Paige, for you, what does training look like? What does a typical day or week for Paige Van Zandt look like preparing for BKFC
4: 19? Um, I mean, pretty self-explanatory. go to the gym, go to boxing every day, box every night or do cardio every night. That's pretty much it. I mean, I have such an amazing coaching staff. I don't really have to think too much about what the training plan is. Pedro's got every day I show up and my whole training regimen is written out for the whole day. So it's pretty great.
0: What about nutrition? What does nutrition look like leading into the fight?
4: Nutrition, about the same. I mean, I think the one different element, MMA fighters cut more weight than boxers do. So uh, that was something I kind of explained to Pedro. I probably have more weight to cut than most amateur boxers do in the gym or most pro boxers do. So, uh, but it's the same as MMA. There isn't any difference for me.
0: Coming off of your last fight, if win or loss, it felt like you earned so much respect because you were a warrior in there what was some of the social media reaction and some of your fans reaction coming off your first fight
4: uh i don't pay attention to social media too much um i like to engage i post when i when i can and um but i i feel like from as far as like my internal team it was a great reaction it was nothing but positivity to learn that uh, to really capitalize off that fifth round, right? To really keep the momentum going, keep now that I had that first round, that first fight out of the way, really know what I was in for and just to grow from there.
0: Rachel, in your opinion, what makes BKFC so exciting? What makes it the fastest growing combat sport in the world?
2: I think the, it's so raw, you know, it's the real sport. You're going in there and it's just all stand-up. And a lot of people just love watching stand-up. You know, those are, Pretty exciting fights even in with the UFC or boxing well obviously boxing but um yeah so I think that's basically it the rawness and the fast pace you know it's two minute rounds definitely a different pace than opposed to a five minute round so yeah
0: about Paige now that you've gotten to experience it what was that energy like just being surrounded by it and that just insane level of action
4: uh, it's about the same. I mean, truly coming from the UFC, uh, it, it's, it's the same experience. You know, the fans, I feel like the great thing about this is the fans are, are truly engaged. They're really dedicated to bare knuckle and they're dedicated to the BKFC. So the fan support is awesome. I love that we get to fight here in Florida where fans are allowed in. That makes a really big difference, especially the transition from fighting with no fans to having fans again is awesome.
0: All right. Expectations, let me start with you, Paige. What can the fans expect from this fight and what's your prediction?
4: Uh, I think, you know what, for every BKFC fight, um, it's going to be exciting, especially the two of us. We fought before. We uh, I feel like we're both going to go into it with an element of no fear, especially because we've already fought each other. Uh, so I think it's going to be fireworks and truly, people just need to tune in and see uh, two chicks throw down.
0: How about you, Rachel? Expectations and prediction.
2: Man, it's so funny. You always ask me after her and it's like, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I don't know but how you guys are
0: fighting each other, by the way. You're like, you're better friends than fighting. It's almost going to be tough no, to watch you guys. We're
2: professionals.
4: I, I, you know, I, was, I mean, yeah, we're professionals, you know, after you've been in this game for so long. Uh, I feel like what happened to the respect in this sport? We're two athletes who have trained and worked our asses off our entire lives. It's fine for us to respect each other
2: period you know i was in the tough house with 16 other girls and we lived together and we knew we was going to fight and we got we had no problems so it's the same
0: can't (laughs) wait to see the two of you get in there bkfc 19 is going to be an absolute incredible experience as every single one of their cards is and i can't wait to see the two of you headlining and really get in there and mix it up guys so congratulations it's going to be an exciting night for bkfc
1: yeah
4: thank you
0: thanks so much guys good luck to both of you
4: you Thanks.
0: can't wait to see you guys go at it bkfc19 again make sure to order at fight.tv or at bkfc.com this is going to be incredible for those who have not experienced bare knuckle fighting championship it is one of the most exciting sports if not the most exciting combat sport on the planet right now pure action and page and rachel are definitely going to put on a show That's it for another great episode of Endless Hustle. As always, subscribe, rate, follow us on social media, show us the love on social media, Endless Hustle. On Twitter is at Endless Double Underscore Hustle. On Instagram, at Endless Hustle Pod. I am at It's Me Arthur Cade on Instagram and at Arthur Cade on Twitter. Have a great weekend, Endless Hustlers. And we're back on Tuesday with another star-studded episode. Keep endlessly hustling and we'll see you next week.